The following presentation was produced by the Buddhist Society of Victoria. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. So, uh, this evening, um, Ajahn Brahm and I were supposed to be there in Melbourne, and Ajahn is now supposed to give a Dhamma talk in East Melbourne Town Hall, but as the things are impermanent in um, this samsara, <laughs> Uh, things got cancelled. So, Adam Brahm is going to give a talk now uh, through this um, from our studio here in Bodhinyana Monastery. And um, the talk tonight will be seeing through the stories of our mind. Sorry, I just have to turn off while volume is feeding back. Sorry about that. Okay, before we start, I wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country throughout the Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay respect to the elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders peoples today. We are very happy to have Ajahn Brahm giving us talk on seeing through stories or our minds spin uh, to start the beginning of 2021, live streaming from Perth. Initially, we planned to have Ajahn Brahm coming to Melbourne and give a in-person talk in Melbourne Town Hall, but due to the COVID situation, the event had to be cancelled. At the end of this talk, there will be a Q&A session. You are welcome to write your questions in the chat box, and I will be reading them out loud. And I think what Ajahn Brahm suggested that we have a little break after his Dhamma talk. You can have a, a break. You can write your questions or have a toilet break if you need it and then 15 minutes or so, and then I will read the questions. There's a short bio about Ajahn Brahm, Ajahn, as, but I think most of you know Ajahn Brahm. This was supposed to be read in the town hall, but I think all of you know mostly Ajahn Brahm. It, but, um, I don't know Ajahn Brahm. Okay, so okay, let's read, read who you are. <clears throat> I'm supposed to be, not who I am. Who I am is very deep. Okay, so Ajahn Brahm is very te- deep, sought-after Buddhist teacher, as many of us know. Ajahn is well known for delivering uh, actionable nuggets of wisdom while delighting his audience with humorous anecdotes. Ajahn is the founding father Father. of of an emergent Australian forest tradition of Buddhist monasticism focused on early teaching of the Buddha, Dhamma and Vinaya. To date, Ajahn Brahm's roles include the abbot of Bodhinyana Monastery here in Serpentine, a spiritual director of Buddhist Society of Western Australia, a spiritual advisor of Buddhist Society in Victoria, a founding chair of the Australian Sangha Association, a spiritual patron of Buddhist Fellowship of Singapore, spiritual patron of Ehipasika Foundation of Indonesia, and I don't know what else. Ajahn has also written several books such as Opening Door Your Heart, Bear Awareness, and his latest book, which published 2019, called Falling is Flying. Then I will short, read a short bio about the Buddhist Society of Victoria and the Newbury Buddhist Monastery. Buddhist, uh, Buddhist Society of Victoria is the oldest Theravada Buddhist teaching center in Australia, located in East Marvin, Victoria. The BSV offers a weekly uh, teaching program, Dhamma School, the Teens Group, and Citizen Young Adults Groups. We are happy to announce that React 
action plans to the city center recommended on December 20th by opening the center on Sunday morning for regular Dhamma talks. Oh, okay, so you're going to open the center. Well, good. In 2014, the Buddhist Society of Victoria established a forest monastery for bhikkhus and bhikkhunis called the Newbury Buddhist Monastery, NBM. With the support from local and overseas supporters, we are able to complete the first stage of the building project in April 2010. That was good. Which included monks' accommodation and Sangha house. Currently, we are working on construction of meditation center in the monastery. If you wish to know more about the BSV and NBM, please visit the B, uh, B, uh, Buddhist Society's website, www.bsv.net.au and nbm.org.au. Okay, without further ado, I will pass the virtual floor to Ajahn Brahm, and I'll put the microphone there. Sorry. <laughs> Very good. So thank you, Venerable Mudita, for assisting me. Yeah. So it's uh, it's is it like a shame that I could not go to Melbourne because of the um, tightening of the border restrictions, or is it just the fact that um, our life is always full of unpredictable events and of course it's usually just full of unpredictable events which means that there is a spin in our mind when we always think that life is going to be predictable able to be planned you can't hear anything so shall i start again no no that is was too soft well that's me i'm soft okay Whoops. Yeah, you should be fine, Adam. I should be fine. I felt fine. So anyway, uh, there's a time lag on the screen now, is that usual? Sorry? There's a time lag on the screen. Okay, it's about a minute time lag. Yeah, there is. Okay. Okay, so I won't look at the screen because it's like looking in the past. The screen. <laughs> what are you doing now? Well, now let's put the microphone. Let's do one more time. One more time. Okay. So. Sorry. Ah, he's kidding me. <laughs> We're not professionals. <laughs> That's obvious. <laughs> Actually, we are professionals. We're different type of professionals. Okay. Much better, okay, yes. Well, I'm sure that many of you must have uh, seen those wonderful um, clips by Laurel and Hardy. This is just Similar. <laughs> this is not Lowell and Hardy. This is Brahma Mudita, our comedy team. <laughs> so anyway, I think we're back to uh, getting rid of those little glitches there. And I love glitches and when things apparently don't go according to your expectations. Because that is real life. The stories are our mind spins are that life should be perfect. That life should be always the way we expect it to be. But if, um, if you've been reading some of the books which I've written and are listening to some of the talks, you will notice that is uh, one of the sayings which I live by is to lower your expectations. Lowering expectations means that we get many more surprises 
way more pleasant surprises when we lower expectations. When things don't go the way we want, when there are uh, border shutdowns and unable to travel and other things occur in our lives, then, yeah, the things are shut down and they're not going the way we expected them to. But it's always something which we can do. Instead of trying to, to live by expectations which the world just cannot provide us, we learn to be far more adaptive. And oh, my life as a monk is often that uh, you have to adapt to changing situations. Oh, one of those stories which I, I learned, you know, how to lower my expectations, was when I was I was going to to um, Indonesia to give some talks a few years ago, and I turned up at the airport with my ticket, my passport, visa, everything was there, ready to go, and. As soon as I got into Perth Airport, there was a big sign up there. I think it was Garuda Airlines, flight something, 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 had been cancelled. It had been cancelled. And of course, there I was. I have, don't carry any money, no credit card, no mobile phone. I had no way of contacting anybody. I was stuck at the airport. So I just was watching what people did. When they heard the unexpected news that Garuda Airlines flight from Perth, I think, to the uh, Denpasar had been, been stopped, cancelled. And I saw some travellers went up to the counter and they were banging on the desk. Bang, 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 you can't do this to me. Get a flight now. And you know, all they achieved by that is getting a very, very sore hand. And I felt sorry for the poor um, Garuda flight um, representative at the counter. It's not her fault. And it's not, and nothing she could do to get that Garuda flight, which had been cancelled, to come and appear like that in Perth Airport. The flight had been cancelled and stopped. There's no way she could uh, flick a magic button and make it appear. So sometimes, uh, why do we get angry like that? As for me, I talked to a few people, made a few jokes, and we discovered you know, why that flight had been cancelled. You know, it, this was a time that we didn't have uh, the disease of COVID, but this was a time they had, I don't know what the real name of the disease was, but everybody knew it as bird flu. Remember that time we had bird flu? And I decided that, well, probably the main reason why the Garuda aircraft was cancelled, because Garuda is a bird. So Garuda must have caught bird flu as well, which is why it couldn't fly that day. Now that's, you know that you can spin stories in your head. So you have a, a choice to spin a funny story or spin a negative story. And the effect it has on you is very, very different. The negative story which you spin about a flight being cancelled just makes your hands sore and you get makes your mouth weak because you've been shouting too much and it causes just so much dis uh, pain and disappointment to those poor ladies who are, who are employed to receive all those complaints. I don't know why anyone want a job like that. Maybe, I think, maybe if they were um, deaf or you know, they couldn't hear properly, that would be a good job for those people who are um, sonically 
um, impaired, audio impaired, whatever you call it, because if you're audio impaired, then you can smile at them all the time, you don't know the heck what they're saying, and they can complain to you as much as they want. <laughs> I don't know, that's just thinking of positive outcomes of such things. But because we know that the way we look at our world is under our control in that sense, that we can change the way we look at our world. Which means that, yes, there are some ways of looking, some uh, stories we spin, which create a lot of negativity. And there are other stories we can spin, which, which creates a positive mind outlook. And certainly in my life, which one is true? What is truth anyway? First of all, look at what's most effective. Effective bringing you to a state of truth, but also bringing you to be able to exercise the compassion which Buddhists talk about. It's not good to shout at somebody and about nothing they can do, as if you're blaming people. I always teach, very often, even last Friday night, I believe, I talked about it's a waste of time blaming people. It's a waste of time blaming yourself. That is the story which you spin, which creates a lot of uh, a lot of problems and trouble in our world. It's very easy when a person is upset to spin that negativity onto somebody else. It's somebody else's fault. And every now and again you see these classic tales. Uh, when I, I, I'm not being honest with you, Whenever I read a newspaper, I usually read the comics first. They, they brighten up my life, and there's also quite a bit of truth in some of those. It's a very quick and powerful way of looking at some of the things which we have in our world. But also, every now and again, you hear these strange stories. These strange stories of somebody, I think, who sued their university because they failed. They said, you should have been more strict on me. It's your fault I failed. And you look at stories like that. And, you know, he had a case, but the judge was smart enough to, to uh, strike it out. Why is it we blame other people when it really is you know, our own laziness? And that's what happens when we spin those stories inside of ourselves. We can blame others, but we don't get anywhere that way. Instead, we should really start to look at what we are doing. Not blame ourselves, but learn from our mistakes. Uh, a similar story was here in Perth. I don't know if the same thing happens to the monks over in Newbury and all the nuns in Newbury, but we always have a lot more young people start to come to our temple uh, around November, December time. This is, oh, usually November. This is the time when people do their exams. The year 12 exams to enter university or the end-of-the-year exams at university, you know, so they can do well and carry on next year. And you always get a lot of people, young people, you can tell who they are, because they don't come any other time of the year. They just come to our temple to get some blessings, because they're worried sick about <laughs> they haven't done much work, and they might have failed their exams, and they feel that, oh, the monks have got power, the nuns have got this oomph in them, so they may be able to help them just with the power of chanting to get good results. And 
The classic story was this young Malaysian woman, first from Malaysia, I found out. And she'd come to Perth, she'd done well enough at school. And her mum and dad sent her to Perth to do her studies at university. But imagine what it's like. For this girl, it was the first time away from her parents. The first time she experienced some freedom, no one checking on her, what she was up to. And so it wasn't the right type of freedom. This was the freedom, you know, what I keep on saying, the freedom of desire rather than the freedom from desire. So she partied, uh, went to clubs, music, and goodness knows what else, and very rarely went to the lectures and stuff at university. So she hadn't really done her studies. And when it came close to the exam time, she said, oh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter about that. I haven't done much study. Ajahn Brahm's a good monk. He is, he's chanting. He will be able to help me. So, so she came to me. And I, you know, I give a lot of really good chanting to many people. And often it works. But you've got to have something to chant on, something to work with. As for her, you know, she hadn't done hardly any studies at all. And so, after the results, after the exams, so when she got the results, she had amazingly failed. <laughs> she didn't pass at all. And what happens next? I never saw her. She didn't come to sort of apologize or anything. I didn't see her, but I knew many of her friends. And her friends were coming around to me and saying, Oh, Ajahn Brahm, that girl you chanted for, she's going around saying you're a bad monk. Ajahn Brahm is a bad monk. I said, Why? What have I done wrong? He said, Because your chanting didn't work for her. You tried to bless her and it all went wrong for her. And they said, It's not your fault, Ajahn Brahm. So we know that. You know, that she hardly done any studies or reports at all. And I always remember that. Sometimes, uh, instead of blaming me, she blamed me, she'd just go and try and find some other mic next year. Or, you know, just and not realize the reason why you failed your exams was obvious. Why can't you see that? You know, you need to study some more. Yes, you can have fun in life. Like, I have a lot of fun in life. But I don't have to have fun by going to parties or going to uh, pubs or something. I don't go to those places. I have fun by meditating. That's my source of fun. But anyway, and also by giving and serving. But anyway, that she said that it's a, a case in, in, in point. Why is it people always want to blame others? Because sometimes it's hard to face truth, especially when you've got this uh, idea inside of you that I'm blaming myself, I'm hopeless, I'm terrible, I can't do anything. That lack of self-respect and so instead of actually facing who we are, as honestly as you possibly can, we can spin all sorts of stories about why you know, bad things happen to us. And this is part of our practice as, as Buddhists, that we are honest to ourselves. It's not God's fault. It's not sort of some, someone's put a spell on me, or I've been cursed. No, don't think even that. Just look at yourself, your own bodily actions, the way you live your life, and the way you train, not just your body, but train your mind. And to train your mind in some clarity and positivity. And first of all, you know, when you do make mistakes, to realize that mistakes are part of life. They're not supposed to be eradicated from life. They're part of life.
It's what we learn from. It's how we grow, how we become wiser. All the times when I've been blamed for something and you look at it, did I deserve that? And a lot of time, it's no, not at all. I'm just being a monk, doing the best I can. Do I blame myself? Of course not. You just look at yourself and say, oh, maybe I could have done better. Maybe I could have, you know, just mentioned to that lady, yeah, I can chant for you, but you've got to do some work as well. You've got to meet me halfway. I know not halfway, but, you know, you did a lot of studies. <laughs> you've got to meet me 90% of the way. I'll just give you some encouragement and confidence when you're in the exam. But anyway, that, but I learn. You learn from your mistakes. Now, I know just a good example of that at the beginning, in the introduction, Venerable Mudita said, oh, very sought-after teacher, really good talks and stuff. But there was one of my disciples years ago, she came from Singapore, and she was staying here for a couple of weeks. And she had permission to go into the library and, you know, look at all those old talks I gave when I first came to Perth 37 years ago. 37, 38 years ago? Anyway, a long time. And she wanted to get one of my early talks. And just to see, just you know, whether they've changed over those 37 years I've been a monk. And she listened to it. <laughs> and she came up to me afterwards, a big cheeky smile on her face, and said, Ajahn Brahma, I just listened to this talk you gave, you know, oh, it was in 1984 or something, and it, or it must have been long, later than 85, 86 or whatever. And she said, you know, that was the worst talk I've ever heard in my life. It was so boring and uninteresting. And she was laughing. I was laughing my head off as well. Because it wasn't a blame. It was actually coming to the truth of the fact that, you know, you've learned so much in all those years. You know, you've learned how to try and be engaging and learn how to say things which make sense to people, which can be helpful, but also, you know, true to what is Buddhism. And so we learn on the road as we do all these things. And once we learn, we're open to that learning, we're open to making mistakes and trying out how to do it better next time. That is where we grow. That is a growth in this process we call, you know, Buddhist training. The growth on the path. And so because we understand it that way, that we're not afraid of honesty and truth. A little saying which I mentioned on my New Year's Eve party. I, I did say I don't go to parties. I do go to parties. Only one a year. My own party. <laughs> I jump around New Year's Eve party. And it's a wonderful thing if I'm not quite sure if you do that in, in the BSV or if you can do it in the BSV because of COVID. But it's a wonderful way of just showing how Buddhism can be relevant. And you know, people on New Year's Eve, the reason it started was because of the, some people complained that their friends at work and sometimes the next door neighbours, they would always celebrate New Year's Eve and they would invite them around to come around and you can't really say no. Being, saying no is like uh, rejecting them or not being part of the community or trying to be aloof from everybody. And so they went and when they went they were offered alcohol and sometimes even refusing that was almost like an insult to their host. So they said, what can we do? So I decided, okay, to, to have an innovative solution, we'll have Ajahn Brahm's party. 
Year's Eve party. And everyone was invited, whoever wanted to come. And we'd have a bit of fun uh, doing things which were interesting, new, different, with a Buddhist flavour. So even last <laughs> New Year's Eve night, Edmund Mudito was with me on this. And we just had a little contest. You know, it was some of my quotes. We asked people, you know, what's the, the last line of the quote? Simple quotes like, you know, you can't change the world, but... And what's the answer? And let people just try and find a good answer. Of course the answer was, you can't change the world, but you can always change your relationship with it. That's something you can do, and something which is highly effective. So, and at that contest, you know, that we had all these questions and gave them marks. We had our president and vice president. And who was the third one there? That was Bill. Bill oh, yeah, as our uh, events manager. And we had all those people there from our committee. And they voted. And even the judges weren't in on what I was up to. Because when we got nine groups, the top seven groups, the ones who got the most votes, were kicked out. <laughs> 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 and the two at the bottom, they were the ones who were selected for the final. Because why do you always think the top marks are the best? Don't we remember like humility and compassion and letting other people win if they really need to? And so it was a Buddhist response to what we call competition in our world. It's not just people who win are the best. These people are the humblest, are the best. Are they? What do you think? But it's changing the narrative, changing the way we look at the world. And so the, those two groups were the winners. They went into the next round, which was organized by Venerable Mudito. Very good job, excellent, good, lot of fun. A lot of fun, but also a lot of wisdom was in there as well. Different ways of teaching, which cut through some of the problems which people have in life are always trying to be the best rather than being the happiest. So anyway, little by little, we understand just how to overcome some of these ways that our mind works. First of all, just you know, real ways our mind works, not judging, not being disappointed when things go wrong. I don't like that word wrong. Is it wrong when you become bottom of the class, like those groups on Thursday night, New Year's Eve, and they were the winners? It's hard actually to take these ideas and make them work and let people see. You now, what are we teaching as Buddhist monks and nuns? You don't have to be the best. Because if you want to be the best, is sometimes what blocks truth more than anything else. It's a fear of punishment, the fear of failure. And why do people fear failure? Sometimes when you fail, you learn so much. When it doesn't go right, you can try again. Do it differently. Innovate and grow. So when we change our attitudes to some of these things are like, don't be a failure, you know, do well in life, do good in life, be way up there, get all your degrees and, and uh, prizes and stuff. And of course, as you know, that I've been there, done that, sort of, anyway, good university. 
But when I went to that university, I was open enough to look at people who were so-called successful and see them. They were just, they were not the happiest people in the world, honestly. And I'm just going to single two people out. There was uh, this professor of physics, and he got the Nobel Prize in physics this year. He was a fellow who did the maths which, you know, proved black holes. You know, Sir Roger Penrose, Nobel laureate. And I remember meeting him and trying to talk to him. And he, he did not have the social skills to relate to anybody. Maybe brilliant on the blackboard and with maths, but not the sort of person I was impressed with to be in life. And of course, some of the other people I've met was multi-millionaires, or maybe billionaires probably, but incredibly wealthy people. Again, this one wealthy person I met, he was, he was living in this big mansion, but he had guards on the door with machine guns. And this was like going into a prison. Because, you know, in there he was, had his freedom, but he didn't have the ability to go out and do his own shopping or just go to a, a concert or something. You know, he was imprisoned by his wealth and fame. Is that the sort of person you want to be? So little by little, because you know, people say, well, Ajahn Brahm, you're famous, you, you're imprisoned by your fame. And no. Every now and again I have fun by, you know, just walking in airports or going to convention centers where I'm supposed to be giving a talk and just <laughs> sitting in the back. And one of the reasons I do that is because when I go places, you know, this is the trip I was supposed to go to Melbourne in, I was supposed to arrive this afternoon. This was, I think, one of the first times I took an attendant with me, Vero Mutito. I usually travel by myself. And people said, well, don't you need an attendant when you're traveling? I said, no, because when you go on the aircraft, you get many flight attendants <laughs> to look after you. <laughs> But sometimes when a person goes in a group with many attendants and stuff, it's as if those attendants, they block them from experiencing the world. You can't sit next to a person and talk to them because the attendants are no, they'll leave him alone. He, you know, he's going to give a big talk tonight. He might be tired. And that's one of the reasons why people you know, who have authority are leaders. Sometimes it's wonderful if they're not blocked with attendants and chauffeurs and hairdressers, I don't know what they have. Oh, I don't know if um, you know that story. There was recently that they saw this group of about four or five monks outside of the, the barber shop on Christmas Day. They said, well, what are you doing that for? Barber shop on Christmas Day. Well, it's an Australian tradition. What <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, <Medito>, he's... <laughs> <laughs> he knows the joke which is coming, the punchline. <laughs> what do you call a group of monks in front of the barber shop? Call it a barbecue. Barbecue. <laughs> Australian tradition. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so, and look, honestly, You've got to tell a joke or something interesting in the middle of the talk because an hour-long talk is a blooming long time. And if you don't sort of get people's interest, sometimes they tend to fall asleep and they just look down at the floor. They have to be there because of the president. I hope Adrian is there. 
have to be there listening because you've got no choice. So I want to make it entertaining for you. But anyway, that uh, when we actually learn not to blame anybody and not to be afraid, that's one of the things with telling even a joke. It takes a lot of courage to tell a joke. You might get the punchline wrong. No one laughs. And that's quite difficult when you tell a really good joke and you mess it up. <laughs> no one laughs at the joke. But what are you doing here? You're developing some courage. When you're developing that courage, you're not afraid of making mistakes, and that's how you learn. And that's probably the reason why, you know, I've told many funny stories and jokes in my life. And I have st stuck with that. No fear at all. And if it goes wrong, I learn to do it better next time. But if you fear what people will say about you, and that, the other type of punishment, of criticism, that's one of the worst punishments which people can receive. You're a terrible person, you're hopeless, and you should be ashamed of being a monk, you should be ashamed of yourself, you know, why do you do that for? It's the wrong thing to do, blah, blah, blah. And I'm sure that each one of you listening here has received that to a certain extent. You know, that self-criticism. What does that do to you? All that really does, if you feel it's a punishment, and you believe it, then you don't try again. It just knocks people back, and they're... Um, their qualities just don't have a chance to grow and they just get quite frankly depressed and from, you know, from depression just you know what's the point you just don't have anything else except just to maybe to fantasize you know watch movies and watch all sorts of other stuff and just to go into obsessions and drugs or porn or something and all that stuff you always thought why why do people do that and as you know, one gentleman said when I had just got to know him, he had obsessions, especially not with porn, but with alcohol. And really trying his very best. And you know, he told me that one of the main reasons those obsessions persist. Now he noticed this with his practice of a little bit of mindfulness and meditation, was he never thought he was good enough. And it was almost like his punishment inflicted on himself for what he thought were the bad things he'd done and the failures of his life. doesn't deserve to be happy. And that came even more prominent, the total other end of the scale, when I was teaching a meditation retreat, and this, this nun, a really wonderful nun, now, I was really impressed with her. Her meditation was fantastic. She was getting all these wonderful nimittas, and those of you who know my teaching about nimittas, uh, they're just the... Uh, the right next to jhanas, incredible states of mind. This is Utri Manusadama's superhuman attainments. And I just could not understand why she couldn't just take that tiny, not even a step, just that little nudge into those jhanas. And for, for about a week, I was giving out extra interviews. And the reason I was doing that because she was so close. I thought, just come on. And then in the end, she came up in an interview and she said, I figured it out myself why I can't make that last step. The last tiny little nudge. It's not even a step, it's half a step, it's a quarter of a step. Why I can't make that last step into the deep meditations? And she said, because, because I don't think I'm good enough. And she said it with such great insight and understood that was probably true. 
She had this amazing mind. But behind all of that, somehow or other, it got impressed into her that she wasn't good enough. And oh, that almost put me into depression. Of course, it didn't really, but I was so, oh, why, of course you're good enough, more than good enough, you're fantastic. Well, where did that come from in this world that people think they're not good enough? And you see, that was the main problem, which didn't get her into the jhanas. Oh, what a waste that was. But it did open up a lot, it's because, you know, we, we believe what other people say. We're afraid of making mistakes, we're afraid of courage. And because of that, we don't just, oh, let's see what happens. Yeah, I am, maybe, maybe I'm good enough. Let's give it a try and see what happens. And if you have that sort of attitude instead of the negativity, you don't agree with this punishment stuff. What punishment is, is, you know, you made a mistake and you think mistakes are wrong. Mistakes are okay, they're right, it's part of life. And when you realize they're right, just, you know, the same, just going on a slight tangent, you know that when anybody does get sick, you've heard me say this before, please don't go to your doctor and say there's something wrong with me, I'm sick. There's nothing wrong with being sick, it's not an evil act, it's not against the five precepts. Have you ever heard the five precepts, no, thou shalt not get sick, I shall refrain from sickness? It's part of life to be sick. So nothing wrong with being sick. And if we didn't get sick from time to time, you know, the body would be really weird. So, when you go see the doctor, because you've got COVID, or you've got um, some cancer, or you know, you've got some crazy sort of illness, whatever it is, please tell the doctor, there's something right with me. I'm sick again. Take away the stigmatism we give to sickness. Take away the stigmatism we give to being different. Actually, there's no such thing as being different. Take away the stigmatism of making mistakes. And when you allow mistakes to happen, and quite frankly, I've tried to do this in this monastery, I think it works, you can ask a bit more detail afterwards. Just allowing monks to make mistakes. Because I'm the boss and I will not punish them. No way. Sometimes people say, oh please, Ajahn Brahm, do some punishment. Monastery is getting terrible. Is it? Are the mugs which I send to the BSV? What sort of quality have they got? Pedro <laughs> is nodding his head. Oh, terrible, terrible, terrible. They're not terrible. They're really good mugs. Why? It's because sometimes they do take a few risks. Sometimes they are courageous to try something new, not to be a prisoner of the stories they spin in their mind. Try something else. See what happens. And if you get it wrong, not punish. Learn, try again. So this is where punishment is what suppresses the truth. Never allows it to come out. You can't say that that's wrong. That's not the way it is. But if you have courage, you go past that. And you actually experiment, see what's happening. But where do all those stories come from, you know, which people believe in? And why is it that they will keep on believing those things no matter what? First of all, again, they're afraid. 
And secondly, that you know, sometimes they surround themselves with people who just they think they're protecting them, but they're actually blocking them from seeing the truth of this world. And that's why you can say, like, like I'm Mr. Trump. You know, he's blocked by all his advisors to actually to see what's really happening. And that's why that every now and again, you know, you used to see, I remember seeing as a kid these movies of the king who just, you know, for a couple of days went out, you know, dressed up as a pauper and went out to see what was really happening in his kingdom. So, he, you know, he wasn't sort of told uh, lies and uh, untruths by his, um, the people who had a vested interest in not letting him see what was really happening. Sometimes you sort of wonder, our leaders, how much do they really know? How much do they really see? Are they protected too much? And I also remember, I don't know if this is true or not, but I remember reading this article about the CEO of um, New Zealand's Air New Zealand. And no, he would, you know, because he was a big boss, he would never stay in his office all the time. He would actually uh, put himself on a shift as a baggage handler. He put himself on a shift on the counter, checking people in at the airports, or even actually being a, an attendant on the aircraft to get an idea of what's really happening with ordinary people. And I thought, that's, I don't know if that was true or not. If it was, well done, that's the sort of thing which we should do. And that's the sort of thing which, you know, even I try and do sometimes by not having attendance and just being an ordinary monk and just talking to people, finding out really what's happening in our world, what's really happening with people. So I'm not just giving the information people think I, I want to hear. See what really is there. It can be sort of shocking and disturbing, but it's also when you understand that mistakes can happen. You know, what I'm involved in, what I'm supposed to be supporting or running monasteries and Buddhist society, don't have to be perfect. <laughs> if, even though we've got an operations manager now in our city centre, just before I left to come here to give the talk, because I was in Dhammaloka Centre in Perth for most of the uh, last few days here, just a couple of hours ago, is I told him, just look, you know, you're the operations manager, but, you know, you're going to fail. <laughs> because it's the nature of our Buddhist society. We try our very best, but we'll never be perfect. So the operations manager could have failed many times because, you know, that, I don't know about you, but I never ever liked what people call organized religion. Because the reason I didn't like organized religion, it wasn't real, it was different than life. Life is not organized. It happens. It's very beautiful the way it happens. And when you even have organized religion, it's a bit too tight for me and just too false. It's not, no, not the real thing. But disorganized religion, disorganized religion, that's what I like. And I said, look, the best will in the world, you know, we're pretty disorganized over here in Perth and in Bodhinyana Monastery. We try our very best. But we're real. And if you like, and admire and get attracted to the monks and the nuns of this tradition, that's one of the things which attracts you. You can relate to them. They're real. They're not just putting on a, a false appearance for you. So that means we're getting some really good news stories about what monks and nuns really are, what life really is. 
And therefore, we can actually face the truth. And when we face the truth and accept we don't try and distort it, then we can allow the truth to be our main teacher. Life is not perfect. You are not perfect and there's nothing wrong with that. You make peace with it. You're kind to it. You're gentle. Of all of you who heard me so many times before, making peace, being kind, being gentle, is the second factor of the Eightfold Path. It really is like letting go, renouncing, being kind, being gentle. But nevertheless, that gives the softness to the Eightfold Path. Not trying to make it perfect, but our attitude changes. And when we change our attitude to our life, to our meditation, to everything, and make renouncing, letting go of control, letting go of ill will, letting go of this harshness which is human beings, a lack of gentleness. I don't know where that came from, but sometimes you go to places in the mountains of Indonesia, or you go to villages in Malaysia, and just doesn't matter the Muslims or Christians or Buddhists, they're just going to be so kind and gentle people. I'm sure you've all seen that. Why is it that sometimes people don't show those qualities? And the harshness and the anger and the violence uh, become preponderant. Why is that? Again, it's not encouraged enough. Even today people think if you're kind, you're weak. And of course, it's not the case at all. It takes a lot of courage to be kind. Okay, I'm sure many of you heard the story last night. Yeah, my Friday night talk. Yeah. And that was the story when I was meditating on this beach in the town of Bunbury, which is south of Perth. And just meditating, quietly minding my own business, sitting there, peaceful, silent. And I hadn't gone into the deep meditation yet because I heard a sound past my ear. And then another. I wondered what it was, and I paid attention to it, mindful, and I realized that it was stones. Stones from the beach were going whistling past my body. I realized somebody was throwing stones at me. And then I figured out why, this was many years ago, there was a group of kids and they shouted in a loud voice, Hey, get off the beach, Rajneeshi. This was a time where people were following, and they're not following Rajneesh, there were quite a few people in Perth were following Rajneesh, you know, Bhagawan, Osho. And they, you know, he was causing a big problem to people here. And I think his uh, representative, I think Marshila, I think she was, Sheila, yeah, she was on the TV really winding people up no end. And so they saw me, these kids, they didn't know who I was. And they thought that this is a... This is one of them, one of the Rajneeshis. Bald head, brown robe, what do you expect? Hey, get off our beach, Rajneeshis, another stone just missed me. And I assume it's only a matter of statistics, because I did statistics at university, of course, I realised you know, that they, <laughs> it's only a matter of time before, by luck more than at good aim, one of those stones would hit me, and that would hurt. So I had no choice. I had to come out of my meditation and stand up, but not run away. I'll never run away. I turned around and walked towards them. That was an amazing time. I remember that very clearly. <coughs> walked towards this group of maybe, I don't know, 9 or 10, 12, 13 young men. Well, they're young boys, you know, teenagers. Uh, 
And they, as soon as they saw me walking towards them, you know, they, they all ran off except one of them. One of them stayed. The other, they tried to, he tried to run off, but then he halted. And the other ones ran away. And there's only just one monk. You know, and the other, others were scared of me. And they weren't scared of, notice, my body. They're scared of my courage. Of walking towards them. That they never expected. So I walked towards them. And one of them stayed behind. I said, look, I'm not a Rajneesh. I'm a Buddhist monk, just peacefully meditating. It's a totally different path, totally different religion. And anyway, if it was a Rajneesh, it's not nice to throw stones at them. You know, whatever you don't like uh, that those people for, you know, you're being worse by trying to hurt and harm people. And I talked in a nice soft tone, and the person listened, and all the other kids came back, and I could teach them about Buddhism. Oh, th thank you very much, sir. Very nice of you, sir. Thank you. And so I used that opportunity to do some teaching. Because this is what happens when you, you change the narratives in the mind and realize what's important in life. And it's taking a few risks and courage. And changing the narrative of these little kids. Just what they'd been heard from others. You know, on the media, on the news, on the TV, there's so much negativity. But very rarely they see something positive, and I could show them that positivity. And that would really help them somewhere in their life. So anyway, that this is the ways we can change people's narratives and by getting over fear, not worry about punishment, and just realizing this is our nature of our life. So we never feel that we need to be blamed for anything. You give it a try if you make a mistake. Okay, never mind. But little by little, we realize this is important as well on our practice of Buddhism to understand just why. Why, like, when you're meditating, that people start wandering off or fantasizing or dreaming? Why do people do that? And it's a total waste of time. As you, many of you meditated long enough know that. It doesn't lead anywhere. And this also means you're just you're missing the opportunity to find this beautiful peace and bliss and insight and wisdom in your mind. And a lot of time it's because I don't know who teaches what, but sometimes we feel, oh yeah, to meditate, I've got to say, watch my breath, I've got to do vipassana, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. This is what I've been told. <laughs> what do you think? So well, I can't meditate because I can't do this. But what can you do? And getting to the heart of meditation, understand what it truly is, what this path is, is learning to make peace with this moment, and be kind and be gentle to it. Making peace, being kind, being gentle. And of course, one of the best ways of expressing that is, I keep calling it Emperor's Free Questions, because I acknowledge where this came from, this wonderful story from Leo Tolstoy. And uh, the Empress three questions in brief, what's the most important time? Who's the most important person? What's the most important thing to do? And I think you all know by now, at least you should, the most important time is now, of course. The only time you have, you ever have, is now. Who's the most important person? There's a person right in front of you. For me, the most important person today is Mr. Computer. <laughs> this big screen in front of me and a camera and all this other electronic stuff. Electronic stuff. You are the most important person in the whole world to me right now. That's why I'm focusing on you. And what's the most important thing to do? It's just to care. And not to care just for the computer, compared to my relationship with that computer, just how we relate together. And that's what I do. 
And that's also what happens when I meditate. People say, I can't meditate. What do you mean you can't meditate? Can't you be in the present moment? Yeah, it can be the moment. <laughs> can't you just be aware of what's in front of you? It's not a place of can you, you have to be. That's the only thing you have. It is right in front of you, just acknowledging the truth of that. In this moment you're aware of something. The only point is that we don't give importance. You give importance to something else, anything else, except what's real right now. And the next thing to do is care for it. Can you do that? Care for this moment? Very simple teaching. Sometimes it's too simple. The point is that that can't be it. Give it a try. Be rebellious. Be simple. Now the most important time. What you're experiencing right now is the most important thing in the world and care for it. I don't mean care to try and get it better in the future. That's not caring. That's trying to control it or exploit it. or uh, Just caring for it is you smile at this moment. You care for what it is. Not what it could be, not what it should be. What it actually is. And then you find, oof. You're actually changing the way that your mind doesn't think about the world. It sees the world. Experiences the world. And the world is not something in a book. The world is there in your mind. And you're caring for it, being with it in this moment. And I used to think at first, oh, I must be just wasting time. I should be doing something. Come on, I jump around. And of course, I'd sometimes stop and do things. And it never worked. But I stayed there. I had the courage to do something different. So just stay in this moment with whatever I'm experiencing, caring for it. What happened? Try it out. Because you're not doing very much, hardly anything at all, just staying with this moment, your energies start to increase. The five hindrances start to get weaker and weaker and weaker. These are the hindrances which stop you seeing the truth. And the hindrances like wanting. You don't see what's real, you see what you want to see. Ill will, you're just consuming, trying to get rid of this rather than understanding it. And sloth and torpor, that's because you're just so tired, you've been fighting inside your mind for, for almost ever. And so you're so exhausted, you're fighting, oh come on, take a break, let go, relax, to the max. Don't fight. And restlessness, if you really care for this moment, you're with it. It becomes your friend. You're there. Thank you, present moment, I'm learning so much from you. And, ah, I've got... I used to have friends, all sorts of weird and different friends. And sometimes the more weird they were, the more different they were, the more I liked them. Because <laughs> I could learn so much from them. If it's a friend who did exactly what I did, yeah, it's nice to be with you, I can relax, but I don't learn as much from you. As if I'm staying with a Christian criminal or something, just giving them a bit of a talk in a, in a jail somewhere. Or that, you know, you're invited to some ceremony and you go and sit next to someone who is totally different from you. And those sorts of people, you know, you can still have this wonderful sense of peace with because they're right in front of you, you care for them, and you learn so much, you grow so much. And so that's why I can be with whatever's happening right now. Make peace with it, be kind with it, be gentle. And then it's like the person which I'm I'm with, they open out, they grow and they become such amazing experiences. 
And so when I meditate, that's what I do. Now's the most important time. It's the only time I ever have. Whatever I'm experiencing now, that is important. And I just care for it. I don't try and understand it, work it out, photograph it, remember it, try and sort of figure out what's this to do with meditation or anything like that. Just let it be. You ever heard that word before? Let it be. Understand it. Compassion, kindness. And then I start doing that. And this moment just blossoms. It opens out. Those talks I've given are opening the thousand petal lotus, mindfulness and kindness. And that is an amazing part of meditation. It's no effort. It's just following the instructions properly. And this moment becomes a, a, a beautiful abiding. Just, just being here. Mind gets so peaceful. It doesn't get restless. It stays here because you're enjoying it. The only reason why people have restlessness in meditation is because they just, oh, they just uh, trying too hard. They don't know how to be here. They don't know how just to stop moving because they're afraid of being here. So after a while, you just stop and be here. And just this whole body and mind opens up. There's some really deep meditations, and that's where you stop seeing the way is this mind, or you stop this mind making up stories because this truth is more delightful. You're not afraid anymore. And the truth is just blissful. Stillness, peace. And all the stuff in the world we worry about, this body and its aches and pains, its sicknesses and stuff, oh, you have to just keep the rules on the outside. You, know, you can't just travel to to Melbourne. Actually, I could travel. We could have traveled to Melbourne. Just we wouldn't have been able to get back into Western Australia. I mentioned that to my president, the president of the Buddhist Society of Western Australia. And I said, oh, the president of Victoria said, no, no problem at all. You can still come. And you won't be able to get back to Western Australia. And he'd be very happy with that. If <laughs> you get two extra bucks stuck in uh, on quarantine in Newbury. I know we don't get quarantine there, but we won't be able to get back to West Australia. He was very happy with that proposition, but not the president of the Buddhist Society of West Australia said, don't you dare. <laughs> we had a good long good fun. Anyway, so little by little, we learn how to make peace, be kind, be gentle. And that stops those five hindrances. And there's the five hindrances. That's what perverts the cognitive process. That makes you see not what you what is real. You see what you want to see. In negativity and second hindrance. You see you don't see what is challenging to you. It's just too hard to admit you are wrong. Too hard to see that lump is growing and it's a cancer. Too um too hard. And actually to see that there's nothing wrong with sickness. All these things which make you more tense. And you respond to that with negativity, trying to get rid of things. Rather than realizing these things are part of life, it's part of our world, it's the texture of life, so let them be. And little by little, even dying. I don't know why old people are afraid of dying. He's got an old body. Is it really viable anymore? 
So if the doctor says to you, you've only got six days to live. They said that to me when I was really sick and in pain. I'd ask the doctor, um, can I negotiate? Can you make it three days, please, <laughs> instead of six? I want to be out of here. <laughs> so a little bit, <laughs> little bit, we changed the way we look at life. And so we change our stories. No fear. So much more wisdom and much more fun as well. It's one of the things which really um, excited me about wisdom. All those wise people which I met, these monks who were supposed to be enlightened, and they probably were, they were such fun to be with. So much joy that they weren't critical of you at all. They were just so kind and accepting. As they were kind and accepting of me, it taught me how to be kind and accepting or whatever I was aware of in my meditation, or in life, whatever happens in life. And that's again in my meditation that takes you into the deepest of states. Empowers your mind, abandons the five hindrances. When it abandons those five hindrances, then, whoa, what you see is reality, you can trust it. You look in your mind, not a hindrance there, nothing you want, nothing you have your will about, nothing you're trying to get rid of. Peace, not restlessness, energy, beautiful energy. The energies you get from meditation are fantastic. Much better than tea or Red Bull or whatever. Am I right, Red Bull? I've never taken Red Bull, by the way. I've taken tea, though. That gives a bit of a boost. But nothing like the boost you get from deep meditation. The hindrances disappearing. And then also, it gets you know, no stop and stop and no doubt anymore. Right, is clear. That is how these, what's it called? What am I supposed to be talking about? <laughs> that is how you see through the stories your mind spins. And I do try to keep to the subject, but I always fail. I fail because I'm not afraid of being punished for it. <laughs> As I say, I am consistent. But anyway... Hope you enjoyed the talk so far, because I can see it's gone past five o'clock, two minutes past. So now is the time, as I was saying to the last retreat I was giving, now is the time to go with the flow. In other words, go to the loo, go to the toilet. <laughs> and let things flow. <laughs> so have a toilet break, and we'll be back in five minutes. And those people have got questions to ask, Please you know, write them down, I think in a chat box or whatever it is you're doing. And then Venomudit Mudito will select the hardest, the most probing, the most difficult ones and try and confound me. Very good. Okay, so five minutes back. Uh, hello, everybody. Yeah, back again. Hope you let go successfully. Going into okay, we've got some questions here. We're going to see which ones get answered. They're not going to see these, by the way. Okay, here we go. Let's see if we can hear me. One, two. Can you hear me? Looks like the okay volume is going up. Okay, hi, Atabrak. Hi. This is from <laughs> Hello. This is from Jennifer. Uh, Blake. Hi, Atabrak. I have a question. My family um, is a strict Christian. If I tell them I am Buddhist, they will be disappointed and believe I've been led astray by the devil. What should I do? Oh, first of all, tell them 
that if God is in control of everything, you become a Buddhist because God has told you to become a Buddhist. Now that's only a bit of a joke, but there's one saying which is uh, from the Christian Bible, which is, by their acts ye shall know them. That's in the New Testament somewhere. By their acts ye shall know them. And he said, if a person, uh, if a devil did really good things, they would explode, they can't do good things. And so that they would know, if you are really a good person, a kind person, generous person, tolerant person, then they would know that you're good. And you can just say that I'm a Buddhist, and by their acts you shall know them. So I'm a good person. And they will see that straight away. And what it will do to them, it will confuse them. It will confuse them because this is, you know, from their, their texts. And you are a good person. They look at you and you have to be even more good. It will actually encourage you to be even a better Buddhist than the average Buddhist. And that would mean it's a great in, uh, incentive your own practice of kindness and generosity and tolerance. If you're more tolerant than them, more kind, more forgiving, more virtuous than they are, then of course that's incredibly impressive. And it's not just to show who is right, it's to help your family because they realize, oh, maybe we were just a little bit confused by what we've been taught. As I said, trouble with uh, strict Christians or strict Muslims or even strict Buddhists for that matter is that they don't open themselves up to the others and so they only get their views and ideas supported by the tiny group in which they live. In other words, they're being deluded themselves. So when you hear more from others and you associate with people who are different than you, not the same with you, there's sometimes who are wise and good and kind. It's still I say when I Chabala Nang Pandita Nanchasewana, the first verse of the the uh, oh, the Mangala Sutta. It is that you know, you're not associating with fools but associating with the wise. And the wise didn't say associating with Buddhists. Or associated with good people, wherever they are. But these are your family, you can't not associate with them. So be really use the fact that they will be critical of you to be an even better Buddhist and you know, learn a little bit about what the Christianity says. Just things like little quotes you can make that by their acts ye shall know them, which means not by their beliefs, but by their acts, what they actually do, how kind they are, how good they are. And then they will respect you. You will change your family that way. You have to be really good to do that. Why not try it? Okay. Uh, I think that's that. Okay, Rajiv Gupta here. Um, he's asking. Um, he doesn't feel that he doesn't. He feels uh, meta meta towards himself or nor to my family. How can I develop meta meditation? Please suggest. Um, okay. Okay, one of the things you can do, you're an introvert person, is actually, I don't know if you have a cat or a dog, get a cat or a dog. Because little pets, they teach you loving kindness. And it's one of the reasons why when I do loving kindness meditations, guided meditations, I often use a little kitten or something. 
Or if you haven't got a kitten or a dog or something, get a teddy bear. You've seen my books on bear awareness. It's one of the other books which wasn't mentioned, but which was a very nice book which I wrote, Bear Awareness. And then the reason I called it Bear Awareness is a bit of a pun, you know, because people say Bear Awareness, just being aware without anything else on top of it. But Bear Awareness is including the kindness, because you're holding a little teddy bear, and teddy bears are really cute, non-threatening, and it allows you to get lots of meta up to yourself. And once you start the little flame of meta coming up with a teddy bear or with a little kitten or a, a dog, it's just so easy to see the similarities between you and them. He doesn't like pets. And if you don't like pets, teddy bears, you can't sort of not like a teddy bear. <laughs> I still remember this. This lady from Sydney, and she was living in an apartment. And when I said teddy bears or uh, babies, I thought, no, all women like babies or pets. She said, I hate pets. And I hate cats. I hate dogs. I don't want to have babies. And I said, well, what have you got in your apartment? And you know, she had enough trust in me to have a think. She said, oh, well, actually, I've got a little pot plant. I'm really worried about it because I'm not you know, in my apartment right now. I'm on a retreat with you, actually, but I might just hope it survives. And I said, ah, great, now we have the seed, the opening where you can get some loving kindness. So think of your little pot plant. You know, you're over in Perth, your pot plant's in Sydney on a balcony of an apartment somewhere. Think of it and send it loving kindness. My, my little pot plant, little seedling. Sorry I've had to leave you for a few days. But may you be happy and well and not too hot, not too cold. I left enough water in the basin for you. You should be okay. And she started doing that. And my goodness, her loving kindness took off. She was innovative. And she did our little pot plant. And uh, because she had a relationship with it. And then after a while... That, you know, when she got back there, the pot plant was fun. She had the, the chance to get this loving kindness started. When she had the loving kindness started, it just took over her. It's just like, please excuse the simile, like you've got somebody with COVID, vac COVID virus somewhere in some shopping centre. It's contagious. And many more people get infected. You get a tiny bit of loving kindness inside of you. My goodness, that's infective. In uh, infectious. And then you start feeling in to yourself, oh, my poor old body. Like a little pot plant, I haven't given you enough water, I haven't looked after you, cared for you. You start caring, it's so much fun. And then when you learn how to love yourself, then you can learn how to love others. It's so easy. It's just getting that first bit of kindness coming up. So find something, uh, Gupta, Rajiv. There's something you like somewhere. And if it's not sort of a, a pet, a pot plant or a teddy bear or something which you can be kind towards, which you love and care for. Okay. Okay. Uh, I think ping pong. Is, oh, you know, ping I'm... pong. Okay, now because ping pong's helped out so stuff. Come on, you mentioned it. Okay, let's do ping pong. Hey, hi, ping pong. Yay, how much you pee? This part one. Okay, well, that's too much. Let's just do part one. My ego makes me want my teacher to be enlightened. Whoever her teacher is. Oh my goodness, I'm supposed to be your teacher. Oh, so you So I understand that others feel the same. But when they claim in public forum that their teacher, teachers are enlightened, <laughs> I feel that it's not right speech. What is Ajahn's opinion on this? I totally agree with you, Ping Pong. And the reason is that because how do you know that your teacher is fully enlightened? You know, 
honestly, that sometimes people ask me, is, was Ajahn Chah fully enlightened? And I don't mind saying, because I've been with him, I lived with him for nine years, and there's a lot of checking out. And so living with him for nine years, whew, then you can say, okay, yes, I would say he is enlightened. But you know one thing? He never said to anybody about his own personal attainments. He never said to any monk or nun or lay person I know exactly what he where he reached. So he never once did he say, I am enlightened. It took me a while to understand that. And okay, here we go. Ajahn Brahm, are you enlightened? Hehehe. <laughs> Or maybe we haven't got the time to answer that question. So no, we can move on now. Okay, no, so <laughs> no, I'm going to answer that question for you. I raised it. And so, and so this is the way I, I answer this question, because I want to take it deeper, not just say yes or no. To make it a deeper answer, so you can understand why you should not say, my teacher's enlightened, my teacher's this, or my teacher's that. And this was... What happened, I was put on the spot once when I was in Sri Lanka. I'm very well known in Sri Lanka. And this was of a group of monks, and they were videoing me in a forest monastery, a really good forest monastery in the south of uh, Sri Lanka. And they said, it was only monks at this meeting. They said, actually, there's only monks here. So you can't use the excuse you're not allowed to tell lay people. So, Ajahn Brahm, are you enlightened? Ajahn Brahm. Can you get into jhanas? Ajahn Brahm, come on, now be honest. They put me on the spot. So, because those were good monks, sort of, you know, you rose to the occasion and gave a really nice answer. And some of you heard me say this answer, but it answers also the question which dear old Ping Pong, you know, she comes to our monastery whenever she can, known her for such a long time. And the answer was that I told people, all these monks here said, Ajahn Brahm cannot enter jhana. I can't enter a jhana. Ajahn Brahm is not enlightened. And then, the way I said it, they realized that, hey, this is interesting. What is he meaning by this? And I said, look, an Ajahn Brahm has to disappear and vanish, first of all. This idea of an identity, my teacher, that has to vanish and disappear. And then jhanas happen. Then stages of enlightenment happen. They don't happen to a person. They happen when the person vanishes and disappears. The whole cognitive idea of a person vanishes and disappears. And then these things can happen, but not beforehand. So that's one of the reasons I never actually asked Ajahn Chah this, but said, you know, why don't you tell people what you've achieved? Because I think maybe he might have said that. I have achieved nothing. It's not an achievement. It's a disappearance. When people have the wrong ideas, what's called the stories your mind spin, the wrong framework to understand these things, that causes so many problems in our Buddhist world. And we go around saying, our teacher's enlightened, your teacher isn't enlightened, da 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 da, my teacher's better than your teacher, my teacher's more enlightened than your teacher is, na 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 na. You see there's so much worldliness in that comparison, and that is really wrong. 
And it also means that many, many of the disciples, they split from the disciples of other people. And we have almost like lineages, or I call them cults. So from people go to refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and Ajahn this, or Guru that. And the Buddha never agreed to that. The Buddha always said that take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. Not the Buddha, the Dhamma, Ajahn Brahm. Not the Buddha, the Dhamma, and Ajahn Shah. Not the Buddha, the Dhamma, and, and Guru this, or this Rinpoche. We take refuge in the Sangha. And so just like when you're at university, you know, who was your teacher when you were at university? You went to many classes, many teachers. So you don't have to be a disciple of one monk or one nun. In fact, be a disciple of the Sangha. That's your teacher. The Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha. That's your teacher. Well, Ajahn, there's a question right after that which sort of ties into that. So this is from David Sanjaya. Yeah. Um, Ajahn, uh, many people talk about the term Hadayavatu in Buddhism. What does it really mean? Thanks a lot. It doesn't mean very much at all. <laughs> because it's a term which um, came from a part of the Thai forest tradition. You know, Hadaya means like the heart, the center of things, and what are the stuff of the heart. It's also trying to get the idea that beyond the five candors, when they all vanish, what's left is Hadaya Watu. You've got so many different names. You know, the original mind, the ground of all being, and stuff like that. And it was totally rejected by the Buddha in the suttas. There's no way in the world you can justify that if you understand what the Buddha taught. And that's you know, one of the reasons why that people say these things that if you object to them, you know what they say sometimes? They say, oh, well, you know, when your meditation gets deeper, you'll understand. You know, just how much just ridiculous statement that is. They cannot justify it at all. And that's one of the reasons why that people in those sorts of groups, they just cling together and they don't allow anybody else, you know, to question them. And that's one of the things which personally, you know, you could see in Ajahn Chah, people could ask him any question. You respect the question and the questioner. And when sometimes people don't respect either, you realize there's something wrong there. One of the things which I'm very happy, thank you Australia, when I came in here I thought I was so smart and wise. And then people here would question you, say that's not exactly right, that's not what the Buddha said. And thank you for that because you know you would question, you wouldn't be afraid of you know asking very deep powerful questions to really good monks. I remember my predecessor was Abbot here, and many in Melbourne still remember him with a lot of love and respect, you know, the former Ajahn Chakra. And I still go and see him every now and again. He's a really, really good friend. But anyway, he told me when he, I think just before I came here to um, Australia, and maybe just afterwards, but in the early days, he went to give a talk in, I think, Melbourne Library. And he came out afterwards. He said he gave a talk, and similarly, he's a really good uh, teacher speaker <coughs> in those days. And at the end of his talk, somebody stood up and said, that's all very well, Ajahn Chakra, but that's nothing to do with Buddhism. 
such a wonderful put down. <laughs> imagine, good imagine. Well, yeah, this is how I've been teaching. But you know, sometimes that people have the guts and the courage to do that here in Australia. It's wonderful. Thank you. Keep on doing that, because that really, you know, sometimes you're wrong, but sometimes it makes us monks, all monks, have a look very deeply what we're doing, and make sure that we are following the Buddha's example. And of course, the last thing to look at is those suttas, the teaching of the Buddha. When the Buddha passed away. Remember this wonderful, uh, this is a powerful statement by the Buddha. Everyone agrees he made it. He said, once I pass away, let the Dhamma and the Vinaya be your teacher. All the things which I have taught, which have been recorded. And not just the Dhamma, the Vinaya, the training. Let that be your teacher, your two teachers from this moment on. And he never appointed any monk to be his successor. No nun, no lay people to be a successor. The Dhammavinya was a successor. Which is why we take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha, not in any monk. And no monk will ever be able to say that you, know, you have to believe in me. I'm the authority. That you, know, you should always trust what I say. No, you don't say that. Let the Dhammavinya be the great teacher. Okay, jeez. We're going to be here a long time, I don't know if you're going to be able to tell us. Oh yeah, but that's good. Okay, uh, those, those have got enough good karma, the questions will be answered. Okay. Yes. If you haven't made enough good karma, then you'd better sort of get your five precepts going or give donations to Newby Buddhist Monastery Retreat Centre. Like two pages here. <laughs> Come on, whatever, just choose what random. Fear, mistake, I have to mistake. I'm going to say anything is condition. Just choose one at random, doesn't matter. Okay, random. Okay, let's say. Uh, uh, no. Uh, my partner dies th 32 days ago. What happens between death and rebirth? Random. How can I use it? Well, a, a lot of times, you can remember that yourself. You do some deep meditation and remember that space. It's not coming from theory anymore. You can remember that space between your uh, last life and this life. And, of course, what happens... Exactly as the Buddha said, you make a mind-made body, so your old body is gone, mind-made body, and you just explore around a little bit if you want to, and then you can go off to your next life, or go in your next life and you do all sorts of things. Sometimes there's not a room available yet, so you have to wait a while. And sometimes people don't want to be reborn yet. It's one of the reasons why in many traditions they have things like 49 days, where they the old person who's died is still around and they wait around make sure everything's okay okay here's another I, sorry I can't avoid funny stories I know some questions aren't going to be answered but this is for everybody that there, <laughs> there was this lady who left some money to our monastery in a will and when she died she told me all of this because you know we did a funeral for her and then uh, after she died you know we just waited a proper time and then asked her, um, what's it called, her widow, widower. He said, no, have, can you, have you found the will? He said, no, no, I don't know where it is. It's gone, disappeared. He was lying through his teeth, <laughs> basically. Because a few days later, he appeared at the monastery really early in the morning in a taxi. The taxi would cost at least a hundred bucks to get here. And there's many other ways you can get there. I'll wait till I go on the weekend. But he came really early. He said, what do you want, George? What do you want, George? He said, here's the will, here's the will, I found it. 
So we don't need to bring it up straight away. It's this early in the morning. It's away, but I have to give it to you. I have to give it to you. Because what happened? His deceased wife woke him up in the middle of the night. A ghost experience. George, George, you know where that wind is. Give it to the monk straight away. And I've never seen this man so scared in his life. So, no, the person who had died was hanging around trying to make sure all of the business was done properly. Gave her husband, widowed now, uh, you know, a few days. And then afterwards made sure that he completed his task and, and gave the will to me. <laughs> it would have been such a funny thing, but I was so, felt so sorry for George, how scared he was. But as soon as he handed over the will, it was a big relief inside of him. So he wouldn't get the ghost again. And that's a true story. <laughs> oh, he saw the ghost, woke him up and saw him get that will to the monks. <laughs> anyway, so that's what happens. So make sure that you know, when a person dies, make sure that you don't sort of you know, misuse your, your life or whatever because they may be watching. Which means also you can give them lots of good karma. Spread merits to them. Think about it and say, look, you've had a wonderful life. Now's the time to go and get a good rebirth. Okay, Michael is asking, Michael is asking uh, here at the, uh, the, the stories of my mind is always useless. And, um, or do they help prepare for situations? If yes, how to realize what is helpful and what is destructive? Well, yeah. Oh yeah, that takes a bit of wisdom. Look, when I was a school teacher, you know, I was a school teacher for one year, I started teaching the law of gravity, you know, to um, primary school kids. How do you do that? You say, what goes up goes down. That's a lot of spin. Because we all know that and if you throw a thing up fast enough, it escapes the Earth's gravitational field. It has escape velocity. That's how rockets work. Go out to outer space. So it's not exactly true, is it? What goes up comes down. But it really helps primary school kids get a first understanding. It's spin, but it's not bad. Useful. And then, of course, when you go to to um, secondary school, high school, you teach you know, gravitational by um, uh, Newton's gravi law of gravitation. Two massive objects they attract one another according to the square of their, uh, the product of their mass divided by the square of the distance apart by multiplied by big G, gravitational constant. Which is not bad, but still not accurate. And then, of course, in university, you start teaching Einstein's special theory of gravitation. Oh, no, I've got that one wrong again. The general theory. That's where space-time is curved. So little by little, so you know, we start with what we can understand. We spin it. But then we realize that people know this is only a start. And then later on, the wisdom will grow. We have to start somewhere. And when we start somewhere, it's not totally the truth, but we know that this is going to lead to deeper understanding. If it's leading in the correct direction, then it's okay. If it's leading to, you know, stop experimenting further, then it's wrong. It's one of the reasons why, as a Buddhist leader, you always have to encourage people to question. You always have to give you no know, good answers. Admit you're wrong when you're wrong. Because encouraging the quest for truth means questions and good answers. And please also have honesty. So you will not stop until you get a good answer. And of course that also means not just asking the monk, 
but practicing what they teach you. Meditating, overcome the five hindrances, so you can be sure that what you see is reliable. Yep. Not too bad, not too bad. Uh, well, we can take Rajabs, you know, you already had that one of them. Should um, generosity be done anonymously or should it be done known to others which is more meritorious? Which actually be done to create more merit? Please suggest. Uh, okay. It's anonymous. It's way, way, way better. Because if it's done and let other people know about it, well, a lot of time it's it really depends on, you know, I should have, that's a, a quick answer which is not really accurate, made a mistake there. That if you want your name emblazoned on the building which you've offered, or you're on the list of people who've made donations, then that is not really donation at all, that is advertising your ego. It's a business deal, I will give you money if you put my name on my family's name, you know, on the, on the Buddha statue which I'm offering or something. But then again, if it's done too anonymously, then sometimes people lose the joy of having Mudita, the mark sitting next to me. And Mudita is just rejoicing in other people's generosity. And as some of the generous acts which I've seen from, oh, just, I've no, I will never forget them. One of the best acts of generosity I've ever seen, which I just makes me emotional every time I think of it, beautiful emotions, was this little girl in the village of Bungwai, and you know she was um, had some deformity that she couldn't speak. She would grunt. The fascinating thing was that every girl in the village she grew up with, they knew what those grunts meant. It was a special language. And you know, she would go to parties and go everywhere with her friends and have a wonderful life. But on this occasion, I was cleaning up our hall. It was my job that day. And I heard somebody come in. I thought it could be a thief. I'm not sure. And it was her, this little girl. And she didn't see me, so I, I hid. And I just wanted to see what she was going to do. And then she looked around as if she was a thief and made sure no one was there. She quickly went to the, the shrine and put something just in front of the Buddha and the shrine. And then she ran out. She never knew I was watching all along. And when I, I was really fascinated to find out what had she put in there. When I went in there, into the uh, close to the Buddha, she put this little folded lotus flower, which she made out of paper. And, and it wasn't the most artistically thing done because you know, she was, uh, had a lot of difficulty using her brain and using her hands. But knowing that she'd she was embarrassed to put it in there if someone else was watching, because you know, it wasn't the best, according to her. When I knew just how much trouble she had gone to to put it onto that Buddha statue, oh, that was one of the most brilliant, beautiful gifts I've ever seen. And I told all the monks afterwards, the senior monks who were there in that monastery, I said, look, this is what happened. You better not touch that little, little lotus which this little girl had put on there, because it, it meant so much to her to be able to do that. It meant so much to me to see that she'd risked so much, so much people criticizing her, to actually go in there and put something on the Buddha shrine. I've seen other people give hundreds of thousands of dollars, but that donation that little girl made was bigger. Very good. I like that. Uh, there was something. Wait, wait. 
Well, let's just do the Shireen okay. Chen. Uh, if a person has been meditating frequently, can they able to continue when they coma? And it, will it that help to determine the realm where they will be get what will be reborn? So, can they continue when they coma? Yes. Okay. And that's what Ajahn Chah used to do. You know the reason why we know that. If you haven't heard this story before, you know when Ajahn Chah had um, had a stroke and that he couldn't speak and had monks. We all had a meeting. It's actually after I came to Perth, and they all had a meeting, and they decided unanimously just to let nature take its course and let him pass away comfortably, just palliative care basically. But then the King of Thailand found out and said, "No way! You've got to keep him alive." So the King of Thailand paid for this uh, medic to be with Ajahn Chah on, on roster, eight-hour shifts or something, for about was it eight or nine years? I think it was. But anyway, well, the monks would also help out. And there was one night that Ajahn Chah stopped breathing. And of course the medic freaked out. You can't stop breathing and let's resuscitate him. He's dying. And the monk said, he's not dying. He's just getting into his deep meditations, into the jhanas. That's what happens when you get into very deep jhanas. You stop breathing. And of course the medic was there. They decided to do this experiment. It would take blood samples every few minutes. And... This, every time they took a blood, he wasn't breathing at all. He was a trained medic, not sort of, you know, someone who doesn't know what they're talking about. And he wasn't breathing at all, but his blood was oxygenated all the time. And so as far as the medic was concerned, as long as there's oxygen in the blood, you don't need to breathe. I don't know how it gets there, you know, but it's there, so it didn't interfere. And that was actually a proof that Ajahn Chah was getting into the deep meditations even though he couldn't speak and was just lying in bed, basically in a sort of coma. So yes, you can, because the coma is just the brain stopping. The mind is something separate, and that mind, Chitta, will still be working, and still be able to access the deep meditations. And of course it does affect your rebirth, so you can still do it. You've got to learn when you know, you've got a brain still working, and then afterwards you'll be okay. Uh, the, the, this is interesting. Sometimes it, this comes to me as well that can uh, your meditation help to determine the realm where you get reborn? In. Yeah, of course you will. Because when you meditate, again, number one, after you emerge from a med deep meditation, you, know, you will have a lot of clarity. You know, this, they say this is not a Kapana Sutta. This is where after you emerge from a deep meditation jhanas, you have no hindrances. All those hindrances are gone, together with, um, with arati and tandi, which is uh, discontent and weariness. You're really strong, and you are clear, which means that, you know, you have the power to see where it might be a good idea to get reborn if you want to do that. It may be even a good idea not to get reborn. <laughs> and that is much more likely if you get into a deep meditation, even in a coma. And in that deep meditation in a coma, you know, a deep meditation at the time of your death or beforehand afterwards, many people when they emerge from that deep meditation can get extreme winning. 
so you actually never get reborn in the lower realm ever again. And sometimes because in the deep meditations you're letting go of all sensory desires, that's one of the things, the five senses. So you, know, you see what they really are. Sometimes you can even become an anagami. In other words, you're not really concerned about these five senses. You've seen you know, what happens with them and you have an alternative, the experience of the deep meditations. So it's much more than giving you power to determine where you want to be reborn. It's much more powerful than that. So you don't actually determine yourself? No, well, you can if you really are silly. <laughs> I want to get reborn just as uh, the daughter of the my mother or something or the person I really like and love. I want to get reborn in Melbourne again because they've got good coffee in the sort of Melbourne or whatever <laughs> That's pretty dumb and stupid, isn't it? But sometimes people have those thoughts. But you know, if you've got deep meditation, the, those sensory desires are pretty weakened. So you know that hopefully you'd want to get reborn, you know, just for the sake of you know practicing the Dhamma in a land where there's lots of Buddhism, good monks, good nuns, and opportunities to practice. Mm. Wow. Uh, okay, well, I just seen what somebody's going to the question here. Uh, Jay Ching. Um, uh, I have a son who's a or mother has a son with the high spectrum of autism. I want to uh, help the son to cultivate um, and ease its the karma of the son who's got autism. How to help son with the autism with the karma? And everything. Yeah, well, look. It's I've seen so many uh, people with autism, and there's so many different types of autism. In fact, the number of people with autism, that's a number of different types of autism. And you try and sort of put them in some sort of bracket somewhere. But again, to be able to, um, for that person who's autistic, to actually to be able to be close enough to the mother or the father, that you can actually just teach them, and don't always try and teach them in the same old ways. Don't teach them you know, Four Noble Truths in Pali. Sometimes you need to teach them with a hug. Or with just you know, let them imitate you. If you want to teach a kid meditation, sometimes one of the best ways is you sitting down and letting the kids sit next to you. And that's why sometimes cats and dogs, you see them and just, what are they doing? When you meditate, they sit close to you and they're peaceful. There's something which a child can pick up from its mother or father, which you cannot speak. They pick up just what you're doing, they can feel. And then when you're still and peaceful, they're still and peaceful. When you're kind, they pick up some kindness. How that kindness is manifest, you don't really know. Depends on the, the behavior of that uh, person. There's another thing which, you know, sometimes we put people in boxes, that they're autistic or they're this spectrum, that spectrum. At least they've got a spectrum now acknowledging that it's so wide. But even that autistic spectrum, remember the teaching of Anicca, things change, they alter. So trust in that too. I don't know what degree of autism they have right now, but it won't always be the same. It will grow deeper or shallower, have moments when they're really clear. So that's why it's, don't, um, be stuck by thinking your child is like this or like that. 
and just be kind. Make peace, be kind, be gentle with your child and try just to see how they grow or what happens to them. And give them that sort of wonderful opening the door of your heart to them, no matter who you are, no matter how you, you develop or what you do. So your child has the, the courage to grow rather than the fear to go deeper inside himself. I don't actually have told this story for a long time, but it's just a simple thing. I had this really powerful dream one night as a monk, and I, I dreamt I was in the, in the first um, home where I lived, which was a council flat, and being surrounded by these really mean and nasty kids. I must have been a seven or eight-year-old or something, and being stabbed with really painful, sharp knives, and being able to see my mother, who saw this happening, just running towards these kids like a, a frantic maniac. You know, she was you know, not a very strong lady, but seeing a kid stabbed, you know, she just drove the kids away. But then, in the dream, I was in this deep state of catatonia. don't know for how long. It was an interesting dream. But then, very, very vivid. And after, you know, not being... Because we went inside because that was a safe place. The only place I could save because being stabbed hurt so much. It's not real. It's just a dream. But it hurts so much, so badly, that's the only place I could go deep, 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 deep inside myself. Where I couldn't feel anything. And then I remember just, just coming out of it. And the only reason I came out of it was just a very incredibly kind nurse. Which was just playing a song on the guitar. And just a kindness gave me the sense of safety. Where I could be okay. And that's how I came out. So just in a dream, but it's a wonderful, meaningful dream. Because you understand a lot of why people go into these deep states, which people say is catatonia, or which is um, uh, autism. There's a being in there somewhere. Why can't they come out? And sometimes because they don't feel safe. And you have to be really lots of meta, really strong meta, for a long time to being a person out. Anyway, that's just you know, one little person. It really meant a lot to me, that dream, and to understand some of the things which happen to people. So life can be very painful. And you know, what would you do if you had so much pain? You try and find some place where you can get away from the unbearable pain. Sometimes that's deep inside yourself. You don't want to communicate with people. You don't want to sort of recognize other people because you've had one or two really painful experiences and that's enough. Anyway, that's a little personal anecdote. Well, I think we're pretty much done. I mean, there's more. <laughs> you can ask, ask more. Yeah, sure, I'm okay. Uh, Okay, so Andrew Yojian. Hi, Ajahn. Um, how can I stay calm and live in the present moment? Because my mind is still regret for the past and afraid for the future. How can I be dealing with my past and my future? Thank you, Ajahn. Okay. That's a common question, but it's a powerful answer. When you look at the past, what you've done, and then please give the past kindness 
give loving kindness to the past. And loving kindness is not just to little kittens or to dogs or plants or may all beings be happy and well. May your past be happy and well. Because sometimes a past can be frightening, like a snake. But you give loving kindness to a snake and the snake will never bite you, never harm you. And so when you give loving kindness to your past, and good examples of that, I don't know what you did, but remember, just be kind to yourself. You've done lots of good things as well in your past. And so what you did, which was bad in the past, be kind. You learn from that. You never do that again. You forgive, are kind, and just... You also be like a kind um, lawyer to your past, trying to find ways to excuse what you did. I wasn't feeling in my right mind that day. I was just really tired, really burnt out, or you know, may have been taking some drugs or something. So forgive that past with kindness. Because regretting a past which you can't change doesn't help anybody. Being kind would say, I'm going to learn from this and grow from this. Make it something which is useful rather than something which is a great burden, like a big heavy rock you're carrying in a backpack around you all the time. Be kind to it. Be kind to yourself, the perpetrator, to know that, you know, that was a long time ago. You've changed since then. So be kind to yourself to put that backpack down so you don't need to carry the past. And let other people know, people you trust, let them know about it, because a lot of the time what you did, if it's just staying in your own heart, it appears so much bigger than what is really true. I remember this one lady, she was dying, and I asked, what's the worst thing you've ever done in your life? And she didn't want to tell me. And it took her many weeks, actually, to get it out of her. When she started trusting me, she said, you're going to die soon anyway, so you can let me know. And she was an elderly lady, and she said that once, once, she kissed another man's hus another woman's husband. And I said to her, is that all? <laughs> is that all you did? And she said, what do you mean? That was a terrible thing to do. It was somebody else's husband, and I liked him. And I was already married, and my f husband never saw this. I gave him a kiss. And I said, well, you know, most people have done much worse than that. So if in your whole life it's, that's all the bad things you've done, that's not bad. Well done. Congratulations. You lived a pretty good life. And when I actually talked to her about it like that, she said, oh, thank you. I should have told someone a long time ago. I thought it was one of the worst things you could ever do. Because when it's inside of you, it expands and becomes this terrible, terrible thing. When you tell other people, you get in perspective, and it's not that bad. It's not a good thing to do. I'm not asking people to go around kissing other people's husbands. But nevertheless, keep it in perspective. You're not perfect, but it's not bad. So that way, we can grow Learn when we're kind to the past. And for the future, be kind to the future. Anxiety is seeing all the things which might go wrong. When I look in the future, I think of all the things which might go right. I'm kind to my future. When you're kind to the future, the future is not such a, a bad prospect. Now look at the future. Oh, we've got COVID. Oh, we've got lots of work to be done. Oh, I'm getting older every day. Oh, more... Oh, come on, Ajahn Brahm, there's more opportunities to do good karma in the future. There's more opportunities to learn, more opportunities to serve. What a wonderful thing you have in Melbourne, the jewel Sangha in one place in Newbury. You know, if, if I was a lay person in Newbury, I'd be just so excited that you have this chance to build something wonderful. You know, this jewel Sangha in Newbury Buddhist Monastery. 
How many other places in the world do you know such a Sangha exists with bhikkhus and bhikkhunis? How many places in Sri Lanka, in Thailand? There's places for bhikkhunis in Thailand. Bhikkhunis in Sri Lanka, well, they're in the same place and they're totally respected. In Melbourne you have that. Pretty lucky place to live. So you look at your future. I'm going to make this happen. Yeah, we're going to really make this. This is my almost a great service I can give. I'm not going to be anxious about the future. I'm going to make the future happen in a wonderful way. So that's what I mean about being kind to the future. Seeing all the great possibilities. We can do some incredibly powerful karma. And that gives you so much energy and happiness inside. Okay. Well, I never heard this before, so I just wanted to um, ask this. this um, Hi, Ajahn. Is Feng Shui practice, uh, practice design it disaligned with Buddhism, or is it mentioned at Buddhism at all? Feng Shui. Feng Shui is just like energy. And I, I always tell my Feng Shui story. You know, I always thought it was a bit dodgy at first, but then one of my friends, he had, please excuse me, he had problems in his marriage. I was always having problems with his wife. Whatever he did, counseling, whatever, just wasn't working. So he, he did go to a Feng Shui master in Perth. And the Feng Shui master visited his home when his wife wasn't there. And he said, the trouble is your furniture in your house is improperly arranged. It's creating bad Feng Shui in the place where you live. So change the furniture in your house, its positions. And I asked him if he did that. He said, yeah, I did that. And it actually worked. It worked very well. So what did you do? He said, well, my, my wife was at the shops. So I put all the furniture against the front door so she couldn't get in anymore. And now I have no more problems. <laughs> <laughs> Please excuse that stupid joke. Oh, it was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> the Feng joke. But against that, the, I tell people this story. One of the people I really respect here, one of our you know, close students here, I was away at the time, as I am quite often, in non-COVID times, and they brought their Feng Shui master, apparently a very famous Feng Shui master, I think from mainland China or somewhere, uh, to visit Bodhinyana Monastery. And this Feng Shui master came into our main hall, our meditation hall, and he was blown away by the energy in that place. He said the front of this hall has got incredible, amazing Feng Shui energy. The back of the hall, not so much, but the front, wow! Some of the best I've ever seen, or felt, or whatever. And I was actually really impressed with that, that sort of diagnosis. Because I know that many, many people who meditate, they met, even on retreat in Jhana Grove, maybe, was that 800 meters away, they take the time to walk over here when the hall is empty, and sit down and meditate there, and they say, the best meditation ever. So there are places which do have strong energy, because I felt that myself. And places that have dark energy. In other words, you know, really bad things have happened in that place. So is that part of Buddhism against Buddhism? It's not mentioned in the sutras so much. In a sense, it's referred to. When what was that? Oh, what was that monk? He asked. He was the attendant of the of the Buddha, not one of the the main attendants. But he said, "I I, I want to go meditate now." And the Buddha said, no, don't do that. And that was really weird. The Buddha said in person not to meditate. He said, no, I really want to. And this is, place is really good for meditation. 
twice the Buddha said no. He asked three times, but okay, off you go. How can I say no to a person wanting to meditate? Now this really terrible meditation, lots of lust came up. And the Buddha said, because I told you not to. Because in a previous life you were a king in this place, in this area, and that was where your harem was. And that's why, you know, sitting in such a place for you, it's got very bad feng shui, or bad e- it didn't say feng shui, but bad energy. And that's the only time which I remember the Buddha talking about places having bad energy. But, you know, for places where lots of good people have meditated, or you go to places in India, whoa, some of those places are really strong. I, I love the Vultures Peak. When I go out there, oh, it's just good energy. That's where the Buddha meditated. It's simple, just caves. And even though there's lots of dogs there and dog poo when I was there, nevertheless, you meditate there and oh, really good energy. That's where the Buddha meditated. You can't get better than that. So anyway, there is something similar. Not quite the same, but similar. And I apologize for the joke, but that's my nature. Don't expect me to be perfect, as I said in the beginning of this talk. And that's my nature. And hopefully some people understand that. It's trying to give some happiness and joy to all beings and not taking things too seriously. Okay, let's finish off. Let's do that one more question. And, uh, from uh, Hanukkah's friend from Indonesia. Ah. Uh, Sugiliko. Sugiliko? Well, oh. Sorry, I don't, I don't know how to pronounce okay. it. Um, what's the difference with, between um, from cut happiness and be free from suffering. What happiness? Uh, so you, what's the difference between, uh, you know, you have happiness oh, yeah. and be free from suffering. So ah, okay. Okay, when you're alive, being free from suffering is happiness. But then after a while that happiness vanishes and suffering returns. It's almost a dance between the two, the night and day. But then after a while, when you get into deep meditation, you get into powerful happiness, more happiness than you've ever had before. A different quality. And it just shows you just all the happinesses and sufferings you have in the body, they just come and go. And they change. You can't have one without the other. But even in the mind, it's much more powerful, the mind, the happiness you have in the mind. The Buddha said, don't worry about being attached to the happiness which comes from meditation. Because from that you only get four consequences. That's in Pasadika Sutta Dika Nikaya. The four consequences of being attached to the happiness of meditation is stream winning, once returning, non-returning, full enlightenment, the four stages of enlightenment. So the happiness which comes in deep meditation is what leads you to leaving the whole world behind, including the world and the mind. So that's a happiness which you should really develop and follow. Become another enlightened one. Why not? Right, I think you've done two hours now, John. Well done. Very good. <sighs> okay, so now we're going to go to the... Closing. Oh, thank okay, you. Thank you. Okay, we do closing. Thank you. Too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> okay, so um, uh, this is uh, on behalf of the Buddhist Society Victoria who organized this. Thank you for everybody. Um, I want to uh, wish that thank you for PSV committee, uh, the event organizers, meaning Mudito, 
No, we, uh, <laughs> we also had Elias, Richard, Adrian, Yasmin, and Vali. Thank you. I've been seeing uh, yes, uh, Vali and definitely there on the Q uh, Q&As. And all the volunteers who worked hard to prepare for the in-person talk, which didn't happen. That's why it was a lot of work for you, I heard. And live stream events. And a special thank to PSV, AV team, me. Well, there was another monk with us. And for a short notice, yes. Uh, thank you for everyone joining the live stream events. It was it was really nice. I think we had good fun. So thank you for everybody. Good night. Happy and before we go, yes. the one person we missed out is the only person why this was even thought of happening. It didn't happen exactly the way she wanted it to. But I was going to go to Melbourne, first of all, because it's one very wonderful woman, a great donor. It was her birthday today. Today is her birthday, 70th birthday. And so she actually paid for the tickets for, from Venerable Mudito and I to travel to Melbourne. It was for her that I, you know, I'm really busy. I'm supposed to be on retreat, personal retreat at this time. I thought, no, I'm going to do this for her because it uh, gives so much and so kind. Why not? And because of that, I was going to travel to Melbourne for Adana uh, with her and also to give these talks. These talks were a little bit of additions. Therefore, I go, I have to talk somewhere, so why not give a good talk? So for, for Judy Tan, happy birthday to you, you know, from Perth. Happy birthday, Judy. And may the merits of this talk, which wouldn't have happened at all, even though it's not in uh, Melbourne, it wouldn't have happened at all if you hadn't given the invitation. So thank you and happy birthday, Judy. Very good. And uh, we probably, hopefully we still have the plane tickets so we can maybe use oh, them. Oh yeah, yeah, you get double because still got the plane tickets and we couldn't get a refund so we got one of these vouchers. Have to come again. So we... So see you again. Bye, bye. Yeah, coming again soon. Keep the COVID restrictions and we'll be back earlier. That's it. <laughs>